Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. Yay! It was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. Oof. So we are still here. We're still in isolation. Um, it's week 7,428. Oh, I remember week. 5,042, just like it was yesterday. Oh, that was a good one, wasn't it? Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. 5,042 was the best week we had since 3,421. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started on that one. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't remember it all, but, <laughs> you know, those things get a little blurry. In any case, we're here now, and uh, we're going to tone it back from our giant awesome Star Trek fantasy draft, which if you haven't listened to already, by the way, check out our previous episode, because it was a riot. Yes, we all had an excellent time, and uh, thank you again to Dave, Aisha, and Zinni for all your help with that. But we're back to sort of a Geek Top 5 special for now. Um, what we've got for you today, it's not exactly dueling lists, but we've each brought a top five to bounce off of each other, and we're talking about, well, today we're talking about screen time, because let's face it, that's what a lot of us are doing these days. Um, and there's plenty of good stuff out there, but lots of stuff that we kind of wish were out there that we'd like to see. So each of us has our top five lists of the things that we want to see adapted to the screen. I have to say, in doing the research for this, I kept thinking of things and then remembering either it's already been made or there's something in production. It, it actually was harder to come up with a list of five things than I thought it would be, just because there's so many different platforms to be creating stuff for now. I mean, just because something has been made doesn't mean it can't be done again, but, you know, properly. <laughs> That's true. It just felt like if I was going to do Ender's Game, it feels a little too soon, but anyway. Oh, nobody remembers that that was a movie. <laughs> Uh, it's you, fair. It kind of came and went. Yeah. It, it, you know what? As far as movies go, it wasn't bad, but didn't hold a candle to the book. Not very memorable. Um, but hey, that's as good a segue as anyway. Graham, why don't you start us off by giving us your number five? Okay. In typical Graham fashion, I'm going to start with a comic book. It's uh, Peter David and George Perez. George Perez is one of the finest comic book artists of any generation, and it, this is a two-part graphic novel about the Hulk. We haven't had a solo Hulk movie in a long time, and this feels like the perfect way to relaunch that concept. Interesting. Tell me more. So, the Hulk gets brought to a dystopian future. Everything, the world's a mess, there have been some nukes, all the superheroes are, are dead and gone, and the city he's in, like the last remaining city on Earth, is ruled by a tyrant named the Maestro, and it's kind of a mystery who he is for the beginning of the book. Uh, one of the cool parts that would be really neat to be adapted into the MCU is the the guy who brings Hulk to the future is a very ancient Rick Jones. Now, Rick Jones hasn't been in the MCU, so you'd probably have to use a different character for it. But he has all this memorabilia from the superheroes, and that's where he lives. And this room just filled with, you know, Wolverine's skeleton and Captain America's <laughs> shield. And so he's you, basically. Ah, I wish. I wish. He, he's super old, and he rolls around in Xavier's wheelchair. It's just like so many cool little nods to the, to the franchises. All anyway, right. as the movie goes on, it's, or as the story goes on, it's revealed that the maestro is a really old, crazed tyrannical hulk 
And so you've got a younger, smart Hulk versus an old, evil dictator Hulk. And it would give Mark Ruffalo a cool dual role where he'd get to fight CG versions of himself. There'd be a lot of nice uh, stuff for fans to pick out in the background, little nods to other movies. I think it's such a a great way to, to do a new Hulk movie. So, sorry, did you mention the name of this this series? It's called Future Imperfect. It was a two-issue miniseries. Okay, all right. So, Hulk uh, gets, you know, time-traveled into the future by mysterious comic book enthusiast guy, by, you know, old Kevin Smith. Um, sure. He finds out that old evil version of himself is ruling over a Mad Max version of the world. Uh, Hulk fights him and beats him, presumably. I don't know, I haven't actually read it. Um, what else are we doing in there? I don't know. That, that's the thing. It's kind of a slim read, even though it's this, this miniseries, these these small graphic novels. It's not a lot happens, but it's about defeating, you know, ah, I don't know how to put it. It's about fighting against your, your older self, like being disappointed in who you've become and the old you being disappointed in young idealistic you. And, and there'd be a very interesting sort of psychological battle there. But it does also leave a lot of room for the filmmakers, whoever they may be, to make twists to it, to add to it, to have it better fit the MCU. Okay. I think it's a good sort of blank slate to start from. Not blank, but... Right, there's a lot of room to sort of write in, that, but to fill it up with MCU pieces. I mean, presumably other characters would have to make an appearance, right? Like, does he run into, I guess, all of his old superhero buddies didn't make it? Or are they, like, is there a creepy old old man Logan equivalent running around? Or In, well, in the comic book, Rick Jones gets impaled on Wolverine's skeletal claws and that's how he dies in the the story well, spoilers okay. i mean who so, else is i mean who else is there for the hulk to talk to it's what i'm getting at it's mainly a kind of a two-hander between young hulk and old hulk hulk and maestro mm. and it's i think what helps is it's not going to be brainless hulk it's going to be the smart hulk from endgame who who would be doing it so right, you're not going to have just like hulk smash versus a smart and bearded hulk so, so it's a bit thin, but I do think it's... Uh, we haven't had a Hulk movie since the Edward Norton one in, what, 2009? So there's... I, I want to see Mark Ruffalo really tear into the Hulk role in a way that he hasn't had a chance to, as just a supporting character in all these other movies. And beyond that, he's a difficult character to have a threat, you know? He's... he's all of his stories are Hulk versus another big, strong guy, and he almost gets defeated, and then he becomes extra strong and ends up overpowering him. And in this story, it would be more of a match of equals, and it would be more about outthinking the other version of him, the thing, the only person who thinks just like him. Right. Okay, no, I'm it's on an board. interesting twist. Yes. You, you've got God. a butt in the seat. I'd watch that. <laughs> I And... For some of these other ones, I've thought of directors or creative teams to be a part of this. But for the MCU, I don't know. The directors rarely seem to matter all that much. Maybe I'm not giving enough credit where it's due. But other than Taika Waititi and, I guess, James Gunn, the directors don't put much of their own imprint on the movies, I find. Maybe George Miller, who does the Mad Max movies, although it's sort of treading old ground for him. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. What's your number five? My number five um, is a little bit of a cheat. 
In a way, it's what I want most on this list, but I also think it might not be holding to the spirit of what we intended, which is why I put it at five. My number five thing that I want to see on the screen is Star Trek Deep Space Nine Remastered. Wow, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I assert that we are not living in the prime timeline. We're not living in the prime universe. Um, The events that are occurring in our world are clearly a mirror universe thing to a better world where things are going correctly. In that correct world, all of Star Trek has been up-rezzed. And if you wonder what I mean, I'm going to direct you, even on Netflix now, for the classic Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation, what they have done is they've touched up these shows so they look good on modern TV. Uh, they've, they, they've, they've remastered them. They've up them. They have not done that for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. And now I think anyone who listens to the show knows that we're not big Voyager people. But Deep Space Nine, I maintain, that was, was so underrated in its time and would, would have been such a popular show if it was airing today. It's a long, serialized arc. It's a long, character-driven drama. I don't know how much detail I have to go into about what Star Trek Deep Space Nine is at this point. Uh, it's created by Rick Berman and Michael Piller. Uh, it was ran from 93 to 99, and it happened in the perfect moment to get the worst quality of film for those shows. That it just, it looks terrible. What the, What's happening here is, for a long time, the television shows were shot in 35mm film which is way too high res for what you think of as classic TV, like NTSC, like the, the 4 by 3 box that we all grew up with, well, not we all, but that you and I grew up with in the 80s and the 90s. What they did is they filmed it on that, that film, and they had it in high res, but they had to sort of scan it in and shrink it down to fit. So when the time came to re-release these shows, the classic Star Trek and Next Gen, they essentially, all they had to do was re-edit it, right? They still had the original film that was shot in super high res. Um, all the visual effects and stuff happened later. By the time we got to shows like Deep Space Nine, they shrunk it down immediately and did all the special effects and editing on the already shrunken, crappy quality version, and that's all they have. So... If we were going to do that, just have Deep Space Nine remastered and up just it would cost a fortune in terms of time and effort and just the, the, the back-breaking labor of editing involved. And there's no way to make that cost-effective. Even for Next Generation, they didn't really make the money back. Not a lot of people no, they bought were... those fancy sets. When it came out on Blu-ray in this new special edition, they were expecting it to do a lot better than it ended up doing, and I think that scuppered any plans they had had to do that for Voyager and DS9. I mean, that's assuming that they would have done it for DS9 in the first place. It does not have the following that Next Gen has, and that's a crime. But that's the world we live in. I don't want to spend too much time on this. We could go talking about more about what a great show it is, but we've done that on almost every other episode of Geek <laughs> Top 5 we've ever recorded. Well, I think the one thing that you should touch on is the remastering that was done for the Deep Space Nine documentary. That's true. What We Leave Behind, the documentary produced by Ira Stephen Bear, um, where they talk about the behind the scenes of the show. Oh, listen, I, I don't have to say Everybody watches documentaries these days. It's very popular. You can watch this documentary about Deep Space Nine, and as part of it, they have remastered very small bits and pieces of scenes. 
And the difference in the quality is astounding. I mean, you watch these episodes on Netflix, and like they're, it's supposed to be a dark and spooky scene, and the closest they can get to a true black is kind of a pixelated green. Compare it to what's in this documentary, and it's heartbreaking. And to be in love with that world and these characters so much, I just wish we could see that on the screen. So I, I could not let this topic go without mentioning it. <laughs> Even though I understand it's not really an adaptation, it's not in the spirit of the thing, but I just wanted to plead my case, you know, just open my heart to the cosmos and see what happens. Because in the good timeline, they're watching good Deep Space Nine, and I'm super jealous. Listen, Warner Brothers opened this can of worms, so now we have a chance here. I think all of our fans should start the hashtag, release the DS9 HD cut, and, and we'll get it done. <laughs> Fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Let's move along. What's your number four? My number four is John Scalzi's novel series that starts with Old Man's War. Really? It, uh, Sorry, please continue, but wow. Okay, yeah. Okay. I, I figured it—I I originally thought of doing it as a movie, but I really think it would benefit more from a TV series adaptation. It uh, It's six books total that ran from 2005 to 2015. It starts with uh, old people on Earth volunteer to be part of a space army when they reach, I think it's 70 years old. And they, they go into space, they get new bodies, and become part of this fighting force that defends all these colonies in space. And I found when I read the first book, I thought, well, that was good, but it's kind of simple and a little too militaristic, rah-rah, let's go. But as the series went on, it got so much deeper and more political, and you learn so much more about that universe. And I think a TV series where you just pace it slowly, things get revealed season upon season, I think it would be a great way to introduce people to that world. And... It's perfect for it. It's been licensed for adaptation a couple of times, but it just hasn't happened. Now is the time. Get on it, like HBO. Especially the first book has a lot of gratuitous sex and nudity. HBO would love that. <laughs> it does seem up there, Allie. <laughs> I think, I mean, the way I have it in my head is that you cast some Hollywood legends for when you see the old people on Earth, and then... They'll, they would just sort of be special guests for that first episode, and then they transition into the bodies of, like, John Cena and Zac Efron and all these ripped Hollywood young guns, Michael B. Jordan, and have have that be the stars of the show going forward. And one of the other things that sets it apart from a lot of other sci-fi shows are the aliens. They're not just humanoid people with stuff stuck on their faces. They're all really weird, and I think... We've reached a point in TV where you could do that amount of CG, that amount of, of design work, and have them be things that people could relate to and, and appreciate as a sentient species. So let me ask you a little bit sort of about the tone you're looking at, because I remember that a lot of that book was maybe not tongue-in-cheek, but it was definitely told with an element of humor. Um, I think either the first or second one, they, like, an alien species are going to war with, like one of the declarations of war is a bunch of humans are captured and end up on like an alien cooking show, and there's a celebrity alien chef that's like showing the best ways to prepare human it was definitely like when you. I'm just asking because when you mention HBO, you think like well, you think nudity and sex and violence, but you also think like dark and depressing and terrible. Are you looking at something more lighthearted for this, or is it like well, just, HBO also also does Silicon Valley, and uh, it doesn't really have any of those other things, and it's just a pretty solid comedy. So they they've got a space in their their landscape for comedy, and I do think this would 
straddle that line. I think it would have it would be gritty and dark, um, but be a bit funnier than Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones had its funny moments. You know, everything with Tyrion is is all well, no, maybe not everything, but there was a laugh, <laughs> a lot of laughs with him. He's a funny guy, and I think you could sprinkle comedy in there, and it would have a lighter touch and make it a bit more palatable and and an easier entry for regular people, not hardcore nerds like you and I. Right, yeah. It's uh, it's essentially it just happens to take place in space, but it's still a show about action and and I guess I mean you're gonna have to do some of that military ha ha ha. But I mean, listen. Um, full disclosure: I never made it past the second book, so I don't know how it evolves. But like at the end of the day, it's more. Is does it end up more cerebral than it does about machine guns, or is it a healthy balance? Yeah. Above? By the end, it gets a lot more political. There's still a lot of explosions and violence and all of that, but it gets into, there's different factions in space, and it turns out nobody on Earth knows what's going on on the colonies, and one of the factions wants to bring Earth into it, so humanity ends up divided. You've got the space colonies, and then their home world is a separate thing. It would get really deep and interesting once you get far enough along, and I think... That would I I know it's sort of cliche now for everyone's looking for the next Game of Thrones, but I think this has a, a nice way to to have that intrigue and politics in there, but also have a lot of you know bang bang pew pew that would bring in people who just want a, an action show. Right. Okay. All right. Nope. I'm sold on that. Okay. What's your number four? My number four is Crimson Skies. Mm. Crimson Skies is a video game series and sort of a board game franchise IP uh, created by Jordan Wiseman and Dave McCoy. Um, there, there is a lot of history and lore to the plot, but what you need to know about it is that it's an alternate 1930s where airships, like Zeppelins, have taken off. Like, we made it past the Hindenburg, and we made it work, and those things, that's how everybody gets around now. You don't ship things on boats, you ship them on Zeppelins. But with, you know, the seas now being the skies, there's also now sky pirates, which is where the hero of Crimson Skies comes in. Um, the Crimson Skies, the, the board game gives you a lot of different options to, to play as different factions, but the video game, specifically the PC game from 2000, is what I'm looking at modeling this on, where you play as Nathan Zachary, the gentleman pirate. And the whole thing is told with this really 30s pulpy atmosphere to the point where that a lot of the plot in between video game levels is fashioned like a radio drama. Where like you know, where people are talking like this, like it's old time radio. It has kind of a, a steampunk vibe. Yeah, the I've heard people refer to it as diesel punk, which to me seems like a little bit of an unnecessary specificity. But <laughs> but yeah, you so you play as this gentleman pirate with a like a flotilla of biplanes, like robbing zeppelins and looking for adventure. Like, the, the first campaign in the video game is that there, you've found a treasure map. You think you know where an ancient Spanish galleon sunk with a bunch of doubloons. It's off the coast of Hawaii. So you fly there, and of course there's rival air pirates trying to get there too. But then while you're there, you uncover that all the British are trying to conquer Hawaii, and they've set up this whole complicated plan that you've unintentionally gotten involved in, and... As part of being the gentleman pirate, you're not going to let these poor people get oppressed by this empire. It's got a very, like, Indiana Jones flavor to it. And so what I'm thinking is I'd like to see a series of 
admittedly, like, probably middle-of-the-road budget movies. Something somewhere in between the tone of the of the original Indiana Jones trilogy and, like, the, like the Mummy series, the Brendan Fraser Mummy. Right. Something like that. Like, a mostly comic adventure where there's, there's traveling and distant places and lots of laughs and fistfights and World War I biplane dogfights. And this, like, it's, this is all written, like, we've got all our characters already, like, besides Nathan Zachary, gentleman pirates, like, everybody's got that over-the-top World War One era, like, super personality. You know, all, all your wingmen have their, their call sign nicknames. Like, you know, it's, it's not just your wingman Jim, it's Jack Mulligan and Tex Ryder and Big John Washington. And- As I remember, everyone's... They're, all the personalities are big. It really feels like an early talkie. Yeah, everybody is larger than life. You know, your, your rivals are, you know, the mysterious femme fatale pilot, the Black Swan, who has an unspecified romantic history with Nathan Zachary. And then there's Jonathan Genghis Khan, who leads, you know, the bad pirates. And and it's a story of betrayal and redemption and, and just fun, exciting plane nonsense. You know, you have to level the biplane over a moving steel locomotive so somebody can climb up on top of the train and then jump into the plane and at one point pretty classic at one point you're you're in Hollywood and they're filming like in the this is in the game you're playing the game you're in Hollywood and they're filming a plane movie and you're impersonating one of the stunt planes to try and like sneak through and so of course as a convincing cover you have to perform all the stunts you have to fly through the O in Hollywood in the sign Right? Like, it's all that kind of silly adventure. Um, That would give you an opportunity to have, like, a Howard Hughes cameo, since he did a bunch of those dashing air movies in the early uh, 30s. Yeah, and that's that's what I think would be—I think that attitude would really work right now. I think it would be really bright and really exciting and really fun. Like, at the end of watching every one of these, you'd walk out just like, that was great. And that's what I'm looking for. Um, I'm, as, in terms of who's to be involved, I mean, ideally, Nathan Zachary would be played by Errol Flynn, but, I mean, he he's not available, <laughs> so... I, look, if it was 10, maybe 15 years ago, I'd say Nathan Fillion, but I gotta say, off the top of my head, putting me on the spot, I'd kind of want Zachary Levy from... Uh, oh, from the, the Shazam, Shazam and from Chuck has. and... Yeah, Chuck was the one I was forgetting. Yeah, no, that, that that could do it. He might need a little more confidence than he usually portrays. Well, he played Flynn Rider in Tangled and did a fine job with an overabundance of confidence in that yeah, role. Okay, nope, that's fair. Uh, as for the other roles, I mean, I guess it depends on how well this goes. But yeah, like these aren't $100 million movies. These are smaller just sort of adventures, like the kind of thing where you didn't realize they made a sequel. But I feel like you'd make more money than you'd spend on each one. And there's plenty of opportunity for, like, oh, in this movie, you know, the, the, the gang is on their way to Paris, and they got some crazy Paris thing going, and they meet a mysterious French villain, and and just recycle mm. that way. I think there'd be a lot of opportunity for a little franchise there, and frankly, it's so upbeat and fun that it's it's something I would really welcome into my life right now. And on that depressing note... Yeah, let's move, let's move on. What's your number three? <laughs> Back to the comic books, and continuing in the MCU vein... I would love to see an adaptation of the Superior Spider-Man series or story arc. Yeah. Let's put Is it that, that the way. Doc Ock one? Yeah. Okay. Please elaborate for the for the listening audience. So, in the comic books, Doctor Octopus is one of 
Spider-Man's greatest enemies, one of his earliest enemies, and they, they have had a lot of back and forth over the years. And finally, a few years ago, there was a storyline where Dr. Octopus was slowly dying, and there was no cure for it. It was an incurable disease, and he was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And finally, he has one last confrontation with Spider-Man that results in 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 him switching minds with Peter Parker. So Dr. Octopus's mind ends up in Peter Parker's body and Peter Parker ends up in Dr. Octopus's dead dying body and he dies. Peter Parker is dead. And now Dr. Octopus is alive and well in Spider-Man's body. But there's just enough Peter Parker left over and enough of Parker's memories left that he is compelled to try and become the superior Spider-Man. To do what Spider-Man does, but better. But because he's a villain, he still goes a little too hard on, on villains. He he goes a little too far in the way he interacts with the world. And he starts to ruin Peter Parker's reputation. But it's a very cool story arc. It, it When it was first announced, I was really skeptical about it. Because these body swap things happen a lot in comics. But they're over within an issue or two. This lasted for a year with this dynamic, and it was great. So much so that they, even when they resolved it and Peter Parker got control of his body again, they brought alternate reality versions of this into the picture where Dr. Octopus stayed in in that body and continued being this sort of dickish (laughs) Spider-Man. And I I think it would be really cool to see in the movies. Have Tom Holland do this. Have him stretch, and and instead of just being, ah, shucks, nice guy, Peter Parker, he gets to pretend to be a jerk for for a movie or two. Now you're making me nervous when you when you talk about Peter Parker being a jerk. I'm I'm drawn to the Raimi Spider-Man three. <laughs> Which I know is one of those things that now there's a lot of apologists for. Like, now we're trying to revise history and say it was great, but I don't know. I think in that movie, it's not handled as well, and it's it's done for a short amount of time, and it's the idea that the, the symbiote suit is corrupting him. In this case, he would be a completely different person. There would be no dancing or emo hair, I don't think. So that'll help. Uh... I originally, when I was thinking about this, I thought you would do it in one movie, but I realized you really need to spend more time establishing the Dr. Octopus personality. So I figure Spider-Man 3 will be Spider-Man fighting Dr. Octopus, and maybe at the end of that movie, the switch happens. And you spend the, the a summer, a year or two, wondering what's going to happen. Peter Parker's body is dead. Peter Par- Well, no, Peter Parker is dead. Dr. Octopus is dead. But Dr. Octopus's mind is in Peter Parker's body. And what will this next movie be? And the next movie is going to be a fish-out-of-water thing where you have an old man in a teenager's body going to high school or college and excelling at all the classes but alienating all of his friends. He goes too hard on criminals, puts a bunch of people in the hospital, and has to learn that control. And eventually, at the end realizes that Peter Parker is the better guy and releases relinquishes the body back to the Peter Parker mind. Maybe I think maybe spoiler alert is arc. that how that happens in the comics? Like does he like you know grow as a character and I believe so, yeah. It's been a while since I've read that whole thing, <laughs> okay, but I think that's how it gets resolved. Uh, the one of the other things that the most fun I had about this was thinking who would play Dr. Octopus and who would uh, who would Tom Holland be basically impersonating for a movie? 
And originally, I thought maybe have a gender swap thing, have it be Beanie Feldstein. I, I don't know that you would know, Jess, but she was in Booksmart, and she's Jonah Hill's younger sister. She's making a name for herself now. And, you know, we already have a history of a, a gender swap Dr. Octopus from the Edge of the Spider-Verse movie. Right. Then I thought, maybe too young. Let's go with a more traditional person, maybe Jack Black, you know? The character's supposed to be heavy set and, and older, and it would be fun to have Tom Holland pretending to be Jack Black for a movie. Hmm. Then I landed on the perfect one. I thought of the perfect guy for this. Toby Maguire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have, to- <laughs> have Toby Maguire play Dr. Octopus in a movie, have him get defeated, and then have Tom Holland... Take on the mannerisms of an evil Toby Toby Maguire for a movie. It's everything I feared the most. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how does how does do you say that just because of the hilarity of the irony, or do you actually see him like embodying a good Doctor Octopus? Like, how does that come together for you? I I would be willing to give him a shot for sure. I think he's we haven't seen him for a long time on screen. I think. The last big role he had that I can think of is from The Great Gatsby, and that was years ago. This might be the thing to lure him back onto the big screen. I, I guess I'm, I'm getting to that. You you want that, but I do want that. Okay. I think it would be. I think it would be. Maybe it's too gimmicky, but I do think there's an interesting tradition of the Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland having former superheroes be the villains, and Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't quite fit that mold, but when Tobey Maguire was holding out on being Spider-Man in 2 and 3, Jake Gyllenhaal had a deal. He was ready to go to replace him in those movies. So he was an interesting casting choice to be Mysterio. Mm. Michael Keaton was the villain in the first one as Vulture, and we all know and love him as Batman. So continue that trend of having former superheroes be the villain. Which is a fun meta-narrative around what you want to show. Yes! Yeah, okay, alright. Huh. Maybe it's too much. Maybe it's too out there. But when I landed on it in my head, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I thought it would be such a fun twist to pull on this whole thing. That would be neat. It, it sort of feels like you're throwing away the Dr. Octopus movie to make room for the Superior Spider-Man movie. But A hundred percent. Oh, okay. <laughs> as long as that's clear. <laughs> I'm I sure better minds than I will figure out a good Dr. Octopus movie, but I am interested in the Superior Spider-Man movie. I mean, to be clear, there already was a good Dr. Octopus movie. Like it's Very true, yeah. very true. And if you count Spider-Verse as a Dr. Octopus movie, there have been two very good Dr. Octopus movies. Yeah, it was more of an ensemble in that case, right? I mean, like the villain in that one was totally. Kingpin, but but I hear you, but I hear yeah. you. Yeah, we're, we're, we're splitting hairs. Who do you have anyone in mind? Can you think of anyone who would would be a good fit? I was thinking of like an older Doctor Octopus. I mean, like, I mean, I don't bring. I, the- I'm not. I wouldn't go all the way there, but I was leaning more towards like a Michael Caine or something. Like I'm looking for a distinguished oh. older. Maybe the guy too old. Yeah, too old. Like, but I'm leaning that way. Maybe the guy. Um, oh, what's his name? Who played Obadiah Stane? Right, it's, it's Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Bridges. Maybe Jeff Bridges. Huh. He's too much of the dude. I couldn't have him be the sophisticated Doctor Octopus. Yeah, he did. You know, he did Obadiah Stane fine. I didn't see the dude when I looked at him. I, I mean, he also wasn't the most interesting character, but it's. But, yeah. but I didn't see the dude, or you know, Kevin Flynn when I looked at him. So there's there's some chops there. <laughs> well, let's let's put it on the back burner for now. Maybe we'll come back to it in a future episode and and really and really dig into, that into meat. this. Yeah. Dig into that octopus meat. 
<laughs> okay, what's your number three? My number three is I want to see Dress the Legend up on the silver screen. What um, is that? Dress the Legend is the, the, the hero character from David Gemmell. He's a British fantasy author. Um, started with this, this comes out of his book Legend in 1984, which is the start of a series of fantasy paperbacks that are very popular across the pond. Um, you can find them here, though. Uh, that is a blast. Um, David Gemmell writes what they generally call heroic fantasy, in that whereas, whereas Lord of the Rings is very poetic and beautiful and Game of Thrones is very brutal and dark... <sighs> Her, David Gemmell's stuff in the Drenai series, uh, the, the name of his, his nation, is about... It's, I've described it to people as it's like reading a cartoon. All the heroes are very hero heroic. They're all virtuous and courageous and you know, full of honor and chivalry. And all the villains are either like warped and twisted men or literally the devil. <laughs> so it doesn't have a lot of depth to it. Uh, but Dress the Legend as a character is really interesting to me. Um, this, 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 like they eventually go back into his history, but in this book, it's, it's a fantasy setting, there's a war coming, there's sort of a Helm's Deep scene that takes up most of the book, the defense of this big fortress that draws Delnock. And the king writes to Dress the Legend, who was this great hero of their people from ages ago, who's now really a tired old man. And he still kind of kicks ass in that way that we see well, that we see in movies a lot these days because these old actors don't want to go away. He's sort of like Expendables age. Okay. Um, but he, he shows up with his legendary axe, the, the Snaga. He shows up at this fortress and as, as, as to inspire the troops and get them all trained up. And at the end of the day, he's exhausted. And over the course of meeting this character, you hear all these stories about his great adventures that he went on and the incredible foes he faced. And, and it's hard to tell what's exaggerated and what's not. But what's clear is that he's exhausted by it and doesn't want to do this anymore. But he's too much of an honorable, like a noble guy. Like, he can't just abandon these people. He has to do the right thing. Legend is a fantastic read. Um, the target audience for it has got to be, like, age 14. It's not a challenging book. It's, like, 300 pages <laughs> of a paperback about dudes swinging swords and axes at each other. And, again, it touched off this whole series. If you look up David Gemmell, he's got, like, he could fill a bookshelf with his own books. Um, but I like the sense of the simplicity of it. Um, I like that everything is kind of predictable about it. There, there's a tendency I find in fiction, especially in fantastic fiction, that everything has to have deep motivations. You know, like the villain, like, oh, yes, they're a villain, but it's because of... You know, because of their past and things are turned on them and they're just misunderstood. And the heroes, well, they're good people, but they have a dark secret because they haven't always been good and they're just trying their best. Uh, it's sort of the anti-90s. We you know in 90s comic books when like villains were just, they were villains because they were crazy. Like yeah. Nowadays, I find it's a little bit too much the opposite of that. Like As cool as it was to get to know Thanos, and you know, isn't it so sad how his planet died and how he became the way he was? Like Sometimes it's cool just to have heroes and villains and good guys and bad guys. And that scene from Helm's Deep, which is one of the coolest sieges ever committed to screen, this one could be even better. Like They go into this a lot because, again, they understand the target audience is 14-year-old boys. And they go into, like, well, this is how the fortress works, and there's these seven 
walls, and each of them have it like they're named for a specific like like element, like phase of the battle. Like first, there's hope, and then despair, and then like determination, and it, it's just a whole thing. Like, there's there's a whole B plot I haven't even mentioned yet about these warrior priests who are all like telepathic and magic, and like they've to like to celebrate life, they have devoted themselves to death. And because of the scales of this battle, like they've decided, and you're, you're kind of like, oh come on, that sounds very Thanos. Yeah, it's, yeah, yes and no. It, like, there's no depth to it. It's just a silly way to say that <laughs> these are magic people, you know, and and they die off heroically one by one because the battle is hopeless. But by staying true to their values and believing that they can win, they 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 inspire themselves to greater heights. Uh, I just I would really like to see that, and there's got to be a niche audience for this. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's because it's English. Maybe it's more popular over the pond. But you don't hear about it a lot here. But Gennel's uh, is pretty prolific over there. In terms of casting and setting it up, I mean, obviously the the the, the big thing is to cast Dress the Legend, and what you need is sort of a big, simple guy. Um, it's a lot of this stuff that he writes is like it's definitely based on Irish mythology and Irish and like dress you know says laddie occasionally, so I guess uh, you'd shoot for an Irish actor or at least somebody who could fake the accent. But besides that, you're looking for I got a guy. All right, hit- but I think you he'd have to bulk up a little, a lot. Hit me, Pierce Brosnan. He would have to bulk up a little. And there's a lot of action. Like, he's got to swing a giant battle axe back and forth for a long time. Is he up for that? I, I don't know. I mean, who? what age were you thinking for for this ki- I, guy? I, don't, I mean, maybe that age is about right, but I just I don't, it's hard for me not to picture Pierce Brosnan as, like, Thomas Crown Affair or Goldeneye right. Pierce Brosnan, right? Like, he's smooth and sophisticated. Like, Holy crap, he's 67. Woo! But, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's still out there doing action movies, so's Rambo, so's Stallone. Yeah, that's, they gotta be that's why that. I brought up the Expendables, right? Like, they can yeah. drag those poor suckers and do whatever, <laughs> like, whatever they did to make a Mr. Ed talk, I'm sure they did the same thing to these guys, <laughs> just to get them out there and... Yeah, they put peanut butter in Sylvester Stallone's mouth and then dumped him over. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Whatever it took to animate those corpses and get them jumping over <laughs> rockets and machine guns oh, again. Do the same We're never going to get them as guests uh, after this. All right, what about Christian Bale? Maybe Christian Bale. Split the difference a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you get that intensity, right? You know, He has to be able to do sort of a Braveheart scream almost, and Christian yeah. Bale can do that. Maybe a little too He's... much, but... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, we don't... I think it would be a tough sell, a bit of a tough sell, because there's there's not much like it out there, especially for a one-off movie of just one long siege. Well, but, hmm. I mean, fantasy is a pretty easy sell in terms of, like, you'll always get butts and seeds to see people with swords fighting other people with swords. You know, and that's... The last Conan movie didn't do great. Yeah, but you for a while you keep seeing these things like you know, they, like they took Robin Hood and made it a medieval fantasy army story. They took, what was it, um... Was it Cinder- Snow White and Thor? The, uh, yeah. yeah, they did yeah. that and made Huntsman. it. Huntsman. Yeah, the Huntsman. That was it, Snow White and the Huntsman. And they made that into a swords and sorcery movie. Like, the, like the, It's pretty much guaranteed to do well enough that they keep making these damn things. So it's enough to get it off the ground. And then you have a built-in fan base for David Gemmel, for the fans of his books. I mean, he's won a lot of awards. 
Um, total side note, because you folks listening at home probably haven't, take a look at Legend. It can't be more than like four ninety nine on ebook. Like it's a tiny little paperback. It's a fun read. It'll take you an afternoon. And like, what else are you doing with your life right now? <laughs> that's that's a great sell. What else are you doing with your life? It's quarantine, man. <laughs> I've spent more time looking at my ceiling over the past however long it's been. I'll watch a Swords and Sorcery movie, no problem. All right, fair enough. Anyway, we're hanging on this. We're sort of getting into the weeds. Uh, if I take away anything from this, give Legend a read, and if you like it, check out some of his other stuff, especially his Rigante novels are also pretty cool. Um, but I think Legend would be neat in the screen. Back to you, Graham. What's your number two? Okay, this is going off the board a little bit as well. Not quite as far off the board as your DS9 pick, but I want to see a Marx Brothers biopic. Okay. Now. All right. Yeah, I'll please. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, the Marx Brothers were a comedy team of actual brothers who uh, started working on the stage in the early 1900s and started making movies in 1929. And they did a series of movies together between 29 and 46. And they are comedy legends. And we've seen biopics of the Three Stooges and Laurel and Hardy just got a movie. Or no, is yeah, Stan and Ollie. That's Laurel and Hardy, right? I'm not a big Laurel and Hardy guy, so it didn't <laughs> do much for me. But the Marx Brothers would be amazing. They're a fascinating group of guys. They're, they're four brothers. They were just as crazy off screen as they were on, if the story, there's any truth to the stories. Well, please hit us with those stories, because I'm still trying to figure out why I'm watching a biopic instead of just watching the Marx Brothers. That's fair. I guess they just got up to a lot of antics. There's a famous story where they were supposed to have a meeting with the guy who ran, I think it was MGM at the time, uh, Irving Thalberg. There's an award name for him now. He was called the boy genius at the time. He was a really young guy who was essentially running a studio, and he, he died fairly young and tragically. But he brought the Marx Brothers from Paramount to MGM and had them, he said, your last movie was great, it was brilliant, Duck Soup it's a brilliant movie, but it didn't make much money come to me, I will be able to channel your zany, crazy energy into box office hits by combining it with romance and music and then Night at the Opera came out, it was the biggest hit they ever had and it was a good combination of their work so anyway, he's invited them to his office. He's late. They're sitting in his office waiting for him to show up, and they're getting bored of just sitting there. So they bar the door. They open up all of his filing cabinets. They're sitting around as, like, waste paper basket, burning stuff and eating s'mores out of it. They were just they were, they were, just such interesting guys, and they, they were as crazy off-screen as they were on-screen. And I, I think they had this long stretch of time in Hollywood where they were so important and influenced so many people that I think they deserve to be brought back into the limelight. Okay, all right. So the biopic is... So it sort of tells the story of their rise to fame, but also accompanied by their own sort of you know, weird and wonderfulness? Yeah, and, and I think... Lately, the trend for biopics is to focus on a specific moment in time. The the whole arc of a celebrity's life has gotten kind of boring and cliche. And I don't know what moment you'd focus on, but I know which brother you would focus on. Harpo. 
Harpo is the guy who was silent on screen. He he was a, a slapstick man. He would go around, honk horns, chase girls, make weird faces. The other brothers were more about their wordplay and, and that sort of comedy. But he that's what sets them apart. He, they were able to do wordplay at an exceptionally high level and do slapstick zaniness at an exceptional level. And that combination would be great. And Harpo is completely lovable off screen. The other guys all had their weird foibles and problems and you know, Chico was a drunk and a gambler and a womanizer and Groucho was kind of a jerk, but Harpo just seems like a sweetheart. He adopted a bunch of kids. They had a menagerie of animals too. He and his wife stayed together forever. He the only times he really came back to Hollywood, he I think he was very comfortable, but he would come back just so his brother Chico could get work. They would always work together and he Chico was constantly needing money to fuel his gambling problems and debts. So he's just a good guy and I think it would be a great window into the world through him. Hmm. He also was connected to the Algonquin Roundtable, which is this famous literary group. They'd all meet for lunch at this this hotel called the Algonquin, and there's the stories about them are legendary, all these wits working together, and he was part of that group, so you'd get to see some other 1920s celebrities, too, through that. Okay, all right, all right. I'd be interested in that story. Who, uh, who does the heavy lifting, though? Okay. Possibly a controversial choice, but... Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the jokes I could make. No, uh, Michael Sarah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. The hair. And, yeah. yeah, the face. I, 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 there was a time where I saw Harpo without the wig on and, and Zeppo, too. They're, they're brothers, so they all have certain similar facial features. But there's a lot of Michael Sarah in their faces, or I guess the other way around. There's a lot of Marx Brothers in Michael Sarah's face. And maybe I'm pinning too much of that on it. I don't know that he would normally be thought of as a guy to play a slapstick comedian, but I think he could do it based on stuff in Scott Pilgrim and with enough training. And his face just would work for I, it, I think. I can see the face. Has he, admittedly, I'm not as a huge follower, but has he played any characters yet who weren't Michael Sarah? After Scott Pilgrim, he kind of disappeared for a while, but he popped up in some indie movies where he would play sort of a darker, more uh, salacious version of that character. <laughs> That's just based on, on my reading of reviews of them. I haven't actually seen them. They're, they're pretty, pretty hard to find, but I think... I don't know. I think it could work, and his innocence, the the sort of innocence we associate with his face and with his persona on screen would work perfectly for Harpo. Yeah, no, the, and then you, the looks are definitely selling it. I'm just wondering about the performance. That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't have a, a strong answer for that, but for years I've thought about this. <laughs> this was not something that I just <laughs> thought up in the last week. It was something I've been thinking about for ages, and Michael Sarah has always been on my mind to play that part, and I think he's just aging even more perfectly into that role. Hmm. I had a harder time thinking of who else I could cast as the other people. It would kind of be fun to have Jonah Hill come uh, pair with him again and play Chico. What do you think of that? Any... I it's just it's like when I think Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill and just like that whole it suggests a certain not stereotype but a certain type of film that I feel like isn't exactly what you're looking for um, but maybe that maybe it's the other way around maybe I should be thinking at it like here's a good chance to break out of that typecasting 
Yeah, and Jonah Hill has been in in a lot of Academy Award fare. I think did he win an Oscar? He's definitely been nominated for Moneyball, so he's got some awards bait cred to him. And this would just be him bringing his old buddy Michael Sarah along for the ride. Another person I thought of is Thomas Middleditch, also from Silicon Valley as Groucho, but that mainly has to do with the fact that he kind of has buggy eyes like Groucho does. Yeah, but but we'll see. I, yeah, comic performance. It's yeah. yeah. And then lastly, I thought of. Uh, uh, Damien Chazelle, the director of Whiplash and La La Land and First Man. I think he would be an interesting guy to direct this sort of biopic. Cool. Okay. Okay, one one other last bit of casting. <laughs> All right. uh, this would be a dream one, but uh, John Stewart, bring him in as their father, Frenchie. Ooh. <laughs> well, okay. If you can get him off his farm, he's available. All right, I'll, I'll send a letter. Yeah, please. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what's your number two? Uh, my number two, um, I would like to see not a movie this time, but I want to see an animated series based on Star Fox. Oh, okay. That sounds very doable. Yeah. Star Fox. That might be the most realistic of anything <laughs> we pitched. I can't understand why it's not already an animated series. This stuff writes itself. Star Fox is a Nintendo franchise. Um, it debuted in the Super Nintendo game Star Fox in 1993, and is probably most famous for Star Fox 64 in 1997, uh, named because it came out on the console of the Nintendo 64, not because there are 64 Star Fox games. Um, <laughs> it is The setting is essentially the spaceships part of Star Wars, but for kids. Which is kind of a silly thing to say because Star Wars is for kids, but but this is really like this is like the characters in Star Fox are anthropomorphic talking animals, right? Like the star like Star Fox is a group of like sort of mercenary pilots, and their leader is Fox McCloud, a literal talking fox, like anthropomorphized. I've like, always loved the name Fox McCloud. It sounds so cool, right? It's such a great action hero name. Um, and Fox leads his 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 wingmen. It's the you know the irritable and irascible Falco, who is a a, a bird, uh, Peppy Hair, the the older professor type, and Slippy Toad, the engineer. And the four of them ace pirates help the the Cornarian army against the evil Emperor Andros. The the, the video games are sort of a sometimes on rails, sometimes three D environment shooter, um, but which is a lot of fun to play. But the highlight of these games. Like, Everything that people like about these games always revolves around the characters and the dialogue. And like every quote, every piece of dialogue from this game has become an internet meme. Peppy Hair shouting at you to do a barrel roll, which is you know the maneuver that you do in the game that you do a roll and it can deflect enemy weapon blasts. Like that has become ingrained in so much stuff. If you open right now, if you open a Google window, like open your internet browser, go to Google and type do a barrel roll, the window will spin just like the ship in the game. And in case you think maybe it's just a coincidence, the full text, like the character just says do a barrel roll, but because it's an instruction to the player, it adds in parentheses what buttons to press. It says in parentheses press Z or R twice. If you type Z or R twice into Google, it also does the spin. Like it's like people remember nice. this game because of the characters and the dialogue. It's, it's so well written and there's so much stuff in there. Like here's an example. Peppy one of like Peppy gives you a lot of just you know dynamic in, like believe in yourself sayings. One of them is um what is it? It's believe in yourself, trust your instincts. Yeah, trust your instincts. He yeah. says that a lot, like once every other level. 
And at the climax of Star Fox 64, Fox McCloud is in a horrible situation. He's trapped in this, like, space maze. He's not going to be able to get out. And the ghost of his dead father appears to him (laughs) to lead him out of this maze. It's a very dramatic moment, and it's touching, and there's some father and son stuff. But his father is, you know, sending words of encouragement, and he says the same quote. You believe in yourself, trust your instincts. And they don't go into it at all. It's not focused on. But as a player, you realize, oh, that's where Peppy learned it from because he knew Fox's dad, and he's sort of taken on this paternal role. Like, like, like there's thought put into who these characters are. So they're animated talking animals that everybody loves. There's a consistent major cast, a stereotypical villain. There's a huge supporting cast. There's like the evil Star Fox team, Star Wolf, who is you know the dark mirror version of all of them. There's Bill and Cat and on all the just, just there's so many things you can Leon, yeah, the other Star Wolf members, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crystal, the the eventual sort of love interest, the female Fox. Uh, which, by the way, I mean, I'll skip ahead a little bit, but I would love to hear her voiced by Jennifer Hale. Right, okay. It would be so perfect. But anyway, the fact, why is this is not like an adventure kids show, where every episode you tune in and Star Fox flies to another planet and, and runs into a problem. Maybe Falco is too arrogant and actually, you know, and starts something up and has to be calmed down. Or maybe because Slippy isn't such a great pilot, he gets into a dangerous situation and they have to rescue him. It, it's all the material is there. It really writes itself. Yeah, it's, it's, this is low effort. Like, I don't want to make that sound like, <laughs> like a negative, but you have everything you need. And you even, like, every, I just, argh, I'm drowning in my own frustration. <laughs> That it doesn't already so it be, exist. I haven't I haven't watched Star Wars Resistance, but would it be in that sort of milieu, that idea? Well, maybe. Star Wars Resistance is aged way, way down. Like, it's for toddlers. Like, we're looking at, like, like ages four and up. Um, so that might even be a little bit too young. So I'm thinking more maybe like the very, like the early seasons of Rebels or Clone Wars, if you're trying to compare it to a Star Wars cartoon. Like, okay. both of those get kind of headier and deeper because they, 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 they pivot to appeal to the 30-year-old Star Wars fans rather than the 3-year-old Star Wars fans. But when they get started, they're just about, like, especially Rebels, is about a family on silly adventures. Um, and, like, all good animate, like, the best animated products are always the ones that you are made for children but appeal to adults as well. So the people our age are just going to be delighted to see our wings and to hear those quotes. You know, once per episode, you drop in a line of dialogue that's the same line of dialogue from the game. Like, and everyone will laugh and applaud and point and, oh, look, it's the you know, member berries. <laughs> um, it's there's no there's no reason it's not an animated series already except for Nintendo's legendary protectiveness of their IP. It does seem odd that there hasn't been more Nintendo cartoons. Like Sega barely exists as a company anymore, and yet they churn out Sonic cartoons like crazy. No, Nintendo has like an Apple protectiveness of their what what belongs to them. Like they don't like they like the fact that they have there are a couple Nintendo games for mobile devices right now has been a huge uncomfortable step for them. <laughs> but man, I, I I'd buy that on Blu-ray. All right. Anyway, enough about that. Go play Star Fox. It's great. Uh, what's your number one? Okay, mine was actually teased in our last episode, in the draft episode. Dun, dun, dun. Can you guess? Can you guess what it is? Uh, something about the Cardassian War? <laughs> <laughs> no, Quantum Leap. Oh, of course. 
Of course. Quantum Leap was a great TV show. It ran for five seasons from 1989 to 1993. It's about a scientist named Sam Beckett who, uh, let me get this straight, theorized it possible to travel within one's own lifespan and got lost in the time stream doing that. He experimented on himself and got stuck going into the past, but they set a fine window on what that means. So he could end up in anyone's body, but it would have to be someone who lived within his own lifespan. So from 19, what, 60-something to the 1990s, although they didn't really travel into the 90s very much. It was usually 60s, 70s, yeah, 80s, sort of. The distant future of the 1990s, yeah. Right. <laughs> so it was it was an episodic show. The only person who could see him was a hologram of his buddy, Al, and Al would show up and tell him what he needed to do that episode, what, what problem from the past he needed to solve in this person's life in order to continue traveling to the next person. It was very episodic, but there is sort of an arc of him trying to find his way home. Later on, they added there were also evil leapers who were trying to undo the things he did, but I think I'd kind of ignore that. It, it was unnecessarily ended, convoluted, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the series ended with him still traveling through time, still lost in time, and I think I, this isn't my original idea. I think I've read this on, on other fan boards or as concepts for other attempts to relaunch this series. But let's do a new series where it's his daughter going back in time, maybe through her timeline or his timeline, trying to find him to bring him back to the, the present day, which I guess now would be the 2020s. Anyway, to bring him home and get get a new couple of actors, tell new episodic stories, but maybe once a season, get her tantalizingly close to finding him, have Scott Bakula cameo, and and give us, the, the fans, that little taste of them almost rescuing him until next season when she has to try again. Hmm, okay. No, I like that as motivation. Now... The, as for casting, I kind of think I would want an unknown for the the new Sam part. Would would it be a girl Sam? Would we do that, or would it be a different name? I don't know. What, what do you think? I mean, I think it's a it'd be it'd just be weird that Sam would name his daughter Sam. Uh, well, maybe maybe the wife was pregnant when he disappeared, and this was uh, a tribute to him. Okay, anyway. yeah, just to remember him by yeah, something like that. Sure, uh, but I think it would, also important to note on. that that actor like. Well, no, I guess even though that's in another body, like, he was always seeing himself in the mirror rather than the person that he... Like, they found excuses to still have Scott Bakula in it, even though he was in, like, a different person, right? So I guess... Well, you would... Yeah, you'd always see Scott Bakula, and then when he looked in the mirror, you'd see the face of the person. Right, it was the other way was... around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, it, you know, that led to hilarious hijinks when he was in a woman's body or, or whatever, or the body of a a monkey in one episode. There's all these different ways to have fun with that. And Scott Bakula would have to walk around in high heels or pretend he was a chimp. Oh boy. And you could do that same sort of, Oh boy. Exactly. <laughs> You'd have to do that same sort of stuff with this actress. Uh, it becomes a great anthology thing. And I think the, the fun casting would be in the new owl part, the hologram that, that the new Sam would see and, uh, tell her what she needs to do. So I figure since we're gender swapping the main character, gender swap that character too. I thought of a few different options. Zoe de Chanel might be interesting. Mm, wacky energy. She, wacky energy, but also she's in her 40s now. Maybe it's time to transition her out of new girl, make her new woman, and put her in this role, in a supporting role. She just has to come in a couple days a week during shooting, have a few one-liners, be wacky, get to dress in fun future clothes, 
and and set the tone. Maybe she skews a little young, but how? But so instead of that, how about Selma Hayek? Maybe mm-hmm. have her be that that give her that energy. Have her be the person who gets to come in and be the bigger name on the show, but lend her gravitas to the to the whole proceeding. Would she do it? Interesting. That's a good question, but what else is she doing? Well, no, that's true. I've, and the answer is I have no idea. I'm not being... Yeah, neither do I, yeah. I guess. Hmm. She shows up here and there. The last one I thought of, this one I don't know that you'll be familiar with, but Mary Louise Parker. She she was in the Red movie. She was Bruce Willis's love interest in those retired oh, and yeah, deadly yeah, yeah. movies. Yeah, the yeah, first one was better than the second one. but Yeah, so she's got sort of a sarcastic energy to her that might be an interesting role or an interesting trait for this character. Yeah. Also give her more agency than that character had in Red. That was sort of a problematic uh, yeah, yeah f- you know, she, female trope. She had her own show. She was the star of Weeds. So she's she's had a... Uh, oh, she definitely I didn't put, can hold Yeah, those. I didn't put those together. Interesting. There you go. So she can hold her own, and I think she's already established her chops in this sort of environment, and it would give her a chance to earn a few bucks and, and be a presence on TV again. Okay. All right. No, I'm on board. Uh, do you have? Do you know what you're going to call it? Uh, quantum leap. Just just quantum <laughs> leap again. I mean, I guess that's yeah. yeah that yeah. happens a lot these days. So that's that. that quantum leap. The next generation. Have it be like even more literal since. She would literally be the next generation after Sam Beckett. Yeah. I mean, I think another show has used that. Um, oh, hey, at least if you Degrassi, the next generation. Oh, that's true. There's been a yeah. few different next that's generations. De- that's definitely so. what I was thinking of. Yeah, it was Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're such a fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's my number one. And, and that one I really want to happen. Apparently there are rumors that the NBC streaming service that's in the works, we'll do a Quantum Leap reboot, but we'll see. Yeah, they got one guarantee to the client, for sure. Yeah. All right, well, that leaves me uh, at my number one, um, which also won't be that much of a surprise. Not teased in the last episode, but teased for my entire life. Um, <laughs> looking at like, a big, expensive miniseries, like, you know, what used to be called the HBO miniseries, but now Netflix original, whatever. Like, if you can get that Mandalorian money, I want to see a miniseries about Battletech. I have talked about Battletech a thousand times on this show, and I might be the only person connected to the show that knows what Battletech is, but it is my favorite favorite franchise. It's it's Game of Thrones meets Star Wars. It's it's nobility and politicking and betrayal, um, but also these giant walking tanks that shoot lasers and missiles at each other. Um, the the factions are divided up into different representations, like cultures based on different points of human history. So there's sort of the ancient Greece, but with giant robots culture, the feudal Japan, but with giant robots culture, like the Neo-China, but with giant robots culture. Uh, and it's just so many opportunities to do so much fascinating storytelling Combined with enough sci-fi, like Battlestar Galactica action, that you would have no problem selling this to people. People who are interested in the franchise because it's Battletech. People who are interested in the Game of Thrones, sort of, you know, Cersei and her wine glass stuff. And the people who just like lasers and explosions. Um, I think what you do... Um, is you set it in the, the, the trilogy of novels, the Warrior Trilogy. Um, this was written by Michael A. Stackpole, a great franchise fiction writer, also did a lot of Star Wars stuff. Um, these three books came out from 1988 to 1989. 
um, tell the story of the fourth succession war in terms of Battletech terminology, which doesn't mean anything to anyone hearing this but me. Uh, but essentially, the two main characters are half-brothers who get involved in separate adventures. You've got Justin Allard on one side, who's got sort of a, a man-between-two-worlds things. He's like His parents are from separate rival nations, and as sort of a mixed breed of both, he's trusted by neither. He starts off on one side, and then is betrayed, and ends up working for the other side. But is he really, and where does his true loyalties lie? We don't know. Um, that gives you a cool window into two of the dominant powers of Battletech, the Federated Sons and the Capellan Confederation. And then his half-brother Daniel Allard is with a mercenary unit, the Kellhounds, who are another sort of author's favorite to write about so many Battletech novels around these guys. Um, and they get involved in a bunch of politicking and weird sort of samurai drama because they're both literally because they're up against the Draconis Combine, who's the feudal Japan nation I alluded to before. Uh, but also there's a whole arc there about like, you know, two legendary heroes destined to meet who have been like deliberately avoiding each other because of like when they meet, one of them will have to kill the other and it'll be so warrior dramatic. Um, there's there's nothing fancy about it. You know, there's nothing groundbreaking about it, but it's just such a cool world, and it has all those key elements that I don't I don't think it would be too hard to sell. I mentioned The Mandalorian before because, besides the fact that it's a great example of what a lot of money going into a series looks like, like that's the kind of, like, the kind of investment I think this would need for all your effects, for all these robots and such. But also that tone. Like, the Battletech universe, it isn't, it isn't terribly grim, but, but it's a dark place. Like, it's dangerous there. And the wild frontier look that was kind of set up in The Mandalorian, I think that's what you need for a lot of this. Like, the sense that like, people just, that they're very rarely is anybody safe. But, but there are rules, and there are certain things to obey, but uh, you know it's going to get called into question. And then also giant robots, okay. because how could that... Like, giant robots make everything better. I, I don't disagree, but it seems like giant robots have been a bit of a hard sell in North America. Yeah, it has. it's not as big as it is overseas, for sure. Um, I've talked about this on the show before as well. I think the, the, the a big difference is that there's a, there's a difference between... For lack of better terms, Western and Eastern giant robots, like giant robots that come out of Japan and China tend to be like magic gargantuan gods who do cartwheels off of moons and stuff. Right. right. This is more of the Western side of thing, where these these robots are just tanks with legs. Like they're they're slow, they're bulky, they're. Uh, I want to say that, like, if anything, they'd be closer to Pacific Rim, but they're, but they're not boxing. Like, the Pacific Rim, I mean, certainly in Pacific Rim 2, it, it was just garbage. Those were just Power Rangers. <laughs> but even in the first one, like, there's a, like, where they're sort of having a UFC sort of football tackle kind of fight. That's not what these things are. Like, they're very slow, very ponderous. Um, it just If you think of the way, like, if you picture that image you have in your head of a tank cannon traversing, like, from left to right where it's very mechanical, it's not very flexible. It's that, just on a cooler scale. And in the games, the board games and the computer games, the way the machines work is all very detailed. There's there's ammo and there's, there's heat to manage and things like that that don't really work in a lot of the fantasy giant robot settings. And in this, 
People, you'd have to really be paying attention to how much stuff you use. That would be a part of the plot, I would imagine. Yeah, you'd you'd have to explain it. I mean, it's it's definitely got its roots back in the eighties, like by talking about how these machines are constantly overheating, like that you know that there was a, like a big problem with them was the waste product of heat. Like that was a good excuse to have all your people driving mechs be nearly naked. Like <laughs> that's what they were going for. And in more recent iterations from the franchise, they've cleaned that up a bit. People wear more clothes now, but. <laughs> But there's there's still like those things you could get into. Um, we're over time, and I've talked about BattleTech at length uh, at this point, so I don't think we need to go into too much more detail. I have no idea who to cast in it. Um, I think unknowns or relative unknowns is a pretty good idea. Again, I'm kind of leaning towards the way Mandalorian was made. Like they're not unknowns, but not superstars. I think this is experimental. I think this is going to be make or break for somebody. I'm going to say, as a, your anchor, Liam Hemsworth. Interesting. As Dan Allard, maybe? Sure. You know, he hasn't been on the screen as much lately. He's in the shadow of his older brother. It's a, it's a way to go. It's possible. Maybe you could do some more established characters for some of the more... I don't know. Anyway, well, we'd have to see. This This one is pie in the sky. I can see your Quantum Leap thing happening. I don't know that we'll ever see Battletech, but that's just a passion project for me. It, it, it did have a very limited 13-episode cartoon run, which might be the... Was it only 13 episodes? 13 episodes plus like a clip show. And it's the only cartoon ever produced by man that hasn't been re-released on DVD. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that's true, but I, I mean, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. They re-released the bloody Ewoks, but they didn't release <laughs> BattleTech. I, it's just ah. Uh, so I mean, that, clearly someone had the idea before. Maybe it could happen again. In any case, those are our lists for this week. Uh, those are our dreams. And uh, hey, if I mean, I get that it's, now is not the time to put new things into production. But boy, would it be good to have some of these to watch right now to help pass the time. In the meantime, though, at least you can listen to us here on Geek Top 5. So no guests to thank this time, but uh, we will be happy to keep bringing you what we can to show you what's entertaining us and what's hopefully entertaining you. Um, special thanks, of course, always go out to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief. Uh, Reum is spelled R-E-A-U-M-E. Uh, you can find him on YouTube at Jamie Reum Official, and he's on Instagram at Jamie underscore Reum. Uh, we don't cover music a lot on this show, even though there's a lot of cool music things to geek out about. You can go to him to get that fix, because he, he's, he's great. He's a performer, he's an enthusiast, lots of stuff to get there. If you have cool thoughts, well, heck, about Jamie, but also about any of the projects we pitched, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And if you had any cool ideas of things, uh, just a bit of something neat, we can talk about it on the show. All kinds of cool ways you can get a hold of us. Yeah, we have our own website, geektop5.com. You can also go to facebook.com slash geektop5. We're on Twitter, at geektop5, and we have our own email address, geektop5 at gmail.com. You check that email address, right? I do, I do, it's on my phone Hey, okay, good news (laughs) Alright, well we'd love to hear from you But until then, we'll make sure that you keep hearing from us So uh, for Geek Top 5, I'm Jesse I'm Graham And we'll be back to talk to you again sometime next week (laughs) Anyway, I've been recording for a while Are you recording? I have been recording, yes Okay, then let's uh, let's get this puppy Puppy, just Fucking let's 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 do the thing where the show happens and we do the show. Uh, start recording. Yeah, <laughs> or start the show. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
Fight the lions. Okay. 